This episode is brought to you by Salt and Strings Butchery in Southern Illinois. Order your custom beef today by visiting saltandstrings.com or use the link in the show notes. This episode is also brought to you by Barbell Logic, the premier online coaching service for barbell strength training. Get your first month free by signing up at barbelllogic.com slash hardmen. Well, welcome to this episode of the Hard Man Podcast. I am your host, Eric Kahn. Very excited to have you with us for this episode and very excited for the conversation that I had with Bill Rapier. This is a while back, originally on the Wilderness Warrior podcast, but excited to share this with you. I just thought, you know what? This is such a fantastic conversation and such a unique individual, Bill Rapier, that uh, I would share it with you guys here on the Hard Men Podcast channel. And I'll explain in just a moment kind of who Bill is. But yeah, very excited for that conversation. The other thing is I want to say thank you to all our Patreon supporters. If you benefited from the show, if it's blessed you in any way, And we'd ask that you please consider joining our Patreon tribe for as little as $5 a month. That goes a long way to supporting the work that we're doing, not only at the Hard Men Podcast, but my friends Brian Sauvet and Dan Burkholder, we have partnered and we're working on New Christendom Press, of which I am the CEO. Somehow they allowed the Hard Man to be the CEO of uh, New Christendom Press, but very excited to be doing that work with my good friends, Dan and Brian. Of course, Brian has the Bright Hearth podcast. Dan joins us both on the King's Hall podcast. And spoiler alert, more podcasts coming. We have some exciting, exciting news that we are working on for next week. In true Kanye fashion, I can't tell you what it is, but there's some breaking news. It's bigger than Sean Payton to the Denver Broncos. It's bigger than that. And to all my Chiefs fans who support the show, the Vassars, congratulations. Your Chiefs are going to the Super Bowl, but back to the big news. Bigger news than the Super Bowl, maybe, probably not. However, next week we're going to be making an announcement, some exciting stuff coming down the turnpike from New Christendom Press. Again, Kanye can't say what it is, but it might be a conference. And we might be hosting that here in Ogden, so stay tuned for that upcoming announcement. Again, you can join Patreon, Hardman Podcast, for as little as $5 a month. So I'd encourage you to do that. And at this point, sit back, buckle up, and enjoy this episode. And today we have a very special treat. We have Mr. Bill Rapier. Bill served as a Navy SEAL. He was an operator, part of DevGrew, SEAL Team 6. Bill is also a Christian father. He serves in his local church, and he's very much interested both in training men and women in the civilian world, as well as training sons and fathers in how to be competent as men. We have a really wonderful conversation with Bill, and I would encourage you to check out his website, which we'll include in the show notes, and that is American Tactical Shooting Instruction. Bill's got a lot of great articles, including one on the Minuteman Preparedness. This is physical preparedness for men in the real world so that they could be able to defend their family, flee from civil unrest or something like that. 
again, tons of great information, and we're going to talk about that and more. So kick back and enjoy the show. And today we are joined by Bill Rapier. Bill, it's good to have you on the show. Thanks for joining us today. Eric, thanks for having me on. Excited to be here. Awesome. Well, Bill, I want to give people just a little bit about your background. Um, you spent a number of years as a military operator, Navy SEAL, DevGrew. Kind of for people who don't know what that means, especially DevGrew, just explain a little bit about the trajectory and what you did in your career. So I joined the service the day after I graduated high school. Uh, I was 17 years old still. My parents had to sign on the dotted line for me to be able to go. Went to boot camp, then went to Corman A School because at the time you couldn't just go to BUDS, which is stands for Basic Underwater Demolition slash SEAL Training. Uh, you had to have a rating. So I picked Corman and Corman is the Navy speak for medic. And basically I picked that because it, it was my backup plan. If I did not make it through training, which most people do not make it through training. I did not want to be stuck on a ship somewhere. And as a corpsman, at least I could go support the Marines. So went through corpsman A school and then checked into BUDS in the fall. I think it was actually, I checked in on Thanksgiving day of 94 and they, they stamped my orders and said, see on Monday. Yeah. I remember not being happy that here I am in San Diego, (laughs) don't know anyone. And, and I've got a, a long weekend where with no place to go, but uh, so I went through BUDS. Uh, it took me a little bit longer than most people. I got rolled twice, once for dive physics, uh, which it wasn't actually the physics part that I had a problem with. It was the fact that I'd forgotten how to do long division <laughs> and we weren't allowed <laughs> to use calculators. So uh, so I got rolled for that once. And then I also had a really hard time running post Hell Week. Still don't really know exactly what the uh, why that was pre, pre-Hell Week. I never failed a timed run, never even got what we call gooned, where if you're too slow during a conditioning run, um, you have to pay extra. So didn't you know, that that never happened to me until post post Hell Week? Man, I couldn't I couldn't run a 12 minute mile to save my life. Really? So it was it was really bad. So fortunately, the second time I got rolled, I remember the basic training officer saying, "Rapier, you got two two choices, and they're both bad." <laughs> and uh, one was cleaning bedpans at Balboa. Yeah, that's, oh, no. that's one of the the duties that Corman do. And, and the other one was going back to first phase and trading in my, my brown t-shirt for a white t-shirt. And, and so I went from day one of Drager dives, you know, day one of closed circuit diving to, uh, to I think life saving. So um, fortunately didn't have to do hell week twice. That was uh, nice of them. Uh, and then was able to slowly build up and, and finish, uh, you know, got my running back to where it should have been and was able to finish with class 201. So finished up buds, then went to uh, the dive med tech course. So basically learning how to deal with dive injuries and yeah. did that and then went to jump school and then went to 18 Delta for the special operations medical course that was in San Antonio at the time. I was the last class to go through there, which was a huge blessing, not having to go to Fort Bragg. Because San Antonio is a lot better place to hang oh, out yeah. than, than Fort Bragg is. Uh, so did that and then checked into SEAL Team 3 in 96 and did, did two platoons there. And then while I was there, I heard about this mystical place called Dev Group and didn't really know anything other than, you know, whispers. And this is the place that you want to go to. Uh, it's kind of the, the next level place. And right. so I very, very quickly made that my goal. You know, that was a, 
couldn't tell anyone, especially for, as a first platoon guy, you couldn't tell anyone that that was your goal. Your, your goal at the time was just supposed to be, you know, be a good, a good platoon guy. But that was in my mind from, from my first platoon on that, that that's where I wanted to go as soon as I started hearing whispers about it. And then anytime, you know, I'd be able to, to corner guys that either had been at the command or, you know, guys that would come from the command and visit, like I would try and, you know, get a little bit of intel out of them as to what was actually going on. So uh, I screened after my first deployment and then uh, was able to go through our selection in, in 2000 and then spent the remainder of my career there. So the next 14 and a half years. Uh, I spent in Virginia Beach. It was a it was a good run. Yeah, that's awesome. So, for those who don't know Hell Week, give us like a rundown of how amazingly fun that week is for you uh, during training. So it actually starts off really cool. Uh, <laughs> they basically everyone you know from about like three thirty or four o'clock in the afternoon on, they want you in your barracks in in your uniform. This so this is Sunday evening. Afternoon and evening. So you've got your uniform on, you're in your barracks, and the class just everyone pitches in and you order a bunch of pizzas and then you just hang out and, and, you know, drink a lot of water and eat pizzas and watch war movies. And then around 6 30 or so, and and we were a winter class. So it was, it was definitely dark by then. So may have been, you know, somewhere between 5 30 and 6 30. Uh, you start hearing machine gun fire and they're they're running blanks. And I remember one of the instructors, this guy, Instructor Hawes, he would dual wield 60s with, with blanks. And this dude was just like this yoked out <laughs> dual guy. Wielding. And he would just be standing out there dual wielding 60s, you know, just shooting blanks up in the air. Uh, and then they're throwing crashes and grenade simulators and artillery simulators and all that stuff. And then you just... that that's how it begins and you know it's cool like that for the first maybe 20 minutes (laughs) right then you're just you know running back and forth into the surf zone and and you basically you've got a little ibs inflatable boat small is what it stands for and, and you have this boat with you the whole time and you're carrying it on your head with five or six other guys and you're just you just go from one evolution to the next continuously. Uh, what is thr- supposed to be through Friday, our class actually got secured Thursday night uh, because a bunch of our guys almost died from the flesh eating virus. What? Because you know, so, there had been so much rain and a lot of the the sewer water from Tijuana flows uh-huh. into, uh, yeah, nasty, flows into Coronado Bay or San Diego Bay there. And part of where you do your training is the mud flats right in there. So we had a couple guys. We had one guy, an officer that lost all the skin on his leg from his thigh down to his yeah. shin. Um, he actually had to get, uh, he was not able to continue on in, in the pipeline because of that. And then a couple other guys got, got the flesh eating virus. And uh, yeah, it was, it was a bad. So kind of, I don't think a whole lot of classes before us had, had, you know, people had, were secured. On, on a Thursday evening, but we actually got secured 12, 15 hours early. So, so yeah, so that's how, like, so you're just basically going through from one evolution to the next. You'll do log PT and then you'll go for a conditioning run and then, and then you'll paddle your boats all the way around Coronado Island, which is a four or five hour evolution. It's just one thing to the next. And the, the good thing is they do feed you every six hours. You're hitting the chow hall, which is, which is nice. And then, of course, everyone immediately just falls asleep when you sit down and they'd walk around with glasses of ice water. And as soon as you dozed off, they just lift 
lift your shirt back a little bit and you get ice water down down the back of your shirt or one of the instructors was fond of he'd walk around with a a spoon and a tabasco bottle and he'd just rub the spoon across the tabasco <laughs> bottle and if you fell asleep he'd make you do a shot of tabasco oh no um that's probably not allowed anymore but uh, <laughs> yeah i could see that not being allowed yeah so that was hell week you know uh many years later fond memories not not for many years later yeah i mean there were, it kind of messes you up i mean there was for months afterwards i'd drive over the coronado bridge and i would look down and see the water and i would physically start shaking really i just remember like the cold yeah it kind of it kind of messes you up for the cold especially if you're in a winter class yeah it's interesting you mentioned that i've had a few times in the wilderness um you know near or past the point of hypothermia and it took me like a year I mean, my, my wife would even say, you're just so obsessive. Cause I, anywhere there was heat, I would crank it. And she was like, are you cold? And I was like, no, but I could be soon. Yeah. I just can't. <laughs> got to build up that heat. Got to bank it. <laughs> yeah. You got to store that heat somehow. Take advantage. Yeah. Bank the heat while you have it. This is exactly right. I, I want to ask you, Bill, like hell week. Um, you know, it's been a little bit popularized. You can read about it. Marcus Luttrell's books. Um, stuff like that. You see it a little bit in, in, in TV. But I'm wondering for you personally, at like that mental, physical level, was there a point you remember where it was like, I'm at my breaking point and I, and I have to make a choice here? Did, did you have one of those moments? Yeah, I, I know some guys say that, that, that they never thought about, oh, would, would I have quit? Um, yeah. I know there was times where I was just like, man, I really don't want to get in the water again. And I just remember, you know, Philippians 4.13 over and over and over again. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Just saying that wow. to myself the whole time because I'm like, and I'm really cold right now and I don't want to get in the water again. Yeah, that's so huge. Well, I, I wonder too, um, as you're going through that experience and, and you kind of look back at it now, I think of things like when Paul says, I buffet my body, like I take it under control. I discipline my body, right? And you're really learning to do that. What do you think for guys? Like, what's the value? Why are they doing that? And what's the value for you now of having been able, you've been through obviously a lot of situations where you've just had to endure the suck and you've had to discipline your body. But how does that benefit you as a man? Part of the reason why they do it during buds is they want to weed people out, right? Because you get a lot of guys that are in great shape that show up. Um, but that doesn't mean you're actually going to stick it out when when things are miserable. And so that's really yeah. first and foremost is they're looking for guys that that are not going to quit. They're going to stick around regardless. Then they're also as as you progress into it and you know through buds and into the SEAL teams, you're constantly learning. You're constantly being evaluated. And so then at that point, it also changes to because we know at that point that that you're going to stick around. You've got the you've got the guts to, right. to hang out. But now do you have the brains and the aptitude to be able to learn the stuff that you need to and then also learn it in a timely enough manner to, to be a part of whatever organization you want to be a part of. So that's part of it. The, the, the discipline side of things, uh, it's huge. If, if you can't be disciplined in your life, where are you going? I mean, you, you just can't, you know, and, and I think it is Paul that talks about the the fitness has has some value but but spiritual things have immense value right that that verse has been hugely convicting to me because you know, what what's my bible time look like you know 15 20 minutes in the morning right 
I spent five plus hours hiking and skiing yesterday. And the day before that, I ran nine miles like uh, so that, you know, all that takes longer than <laughs> 20 minutes. And right. so, so it's actually one of the things that I've changed is I used to just listen to techno music or some audiobook that was just kind of mindless. And now like I try to be deliberate about listening to you know, John MacArthur sermons or something, um, something that's going to be, uh, that's going to discipline my spiritual walk as well. Yeah, I think that's really huge. And something you mentioned too is being aware of how much effort energy you're putting into the physical and the mental, both of them really are connected with each other. Both are very, very important. But I'm curious, especially on that that mental side, I, I've known a lot of guys, military, especially you get into the elite units, where there's a lot of focus on body. And that's a lot of what people perceive is like, these guys are really cut, they're really ripped. But the mental is so huge. And, and guys who are svelte and bodybuilder, look like bodybuilders or whatever, may not make it, as you said, because you're, you're failing on the mental thing. So talk just a little bit about why that's so important, having that mental uh, aspect and the balance to be strong there. If the mindset's not there, I mean, the, nothing else matters. I mean, that's one of the right. things I, I do a mindset talk every, every two-day training course that I do. And I would much rather have a guy that knows what his willingness is, that knows that has awareness, that knows, you know, that has some level of preparedness, but maybe his level of preparedness is I can pick up this brick and I, I smash with brick. Like that, that's his yeah. level of preparedness. Like that's his actual skill level. I'd much rather have that guy, but he's thought through his willingness. When am I willing to use this brick? And I have the awareness to, to, to see that, Hey, there's potential, a potential guy that needs the brick that's walking towards me right now. <laughs> like I'd much rather have that guy than the guy that's an amazing shooter, an amazing fighter, but he's going to go and he's either going to blow off his awareness. He's not going to see what's going on. Uh, or maybe his willingness is uh, not there because he hasn't thought through when he's actually willing to go to guns under what circumstances. So having that, having that mindset, thinking through when we're willing to do things, what are we willing to do? All of those things are hugely important. Yeah, I think that's huge. And it's always made me wonder in life, obviously reading about these things, uh, I haven't been through buds or any of the really horrible situations like that, but some, some different difficulties in life, suffering. As you think about these, I, I've always wondered, and I wonder if you have any answers on this front, but you look at guys and you think, that guy I thought would make it, he didn't. Um, these guys, you know, did make it. They proved themselves in the midst of fire and trial. But it's an important thing for men to be tested, right? You can't, you like you said in buds, like you can't know beforehand. Uh, a lot of times, you can't guess um, who's who's going to make it and who's not. So I'm curious, uh, why do you think it's so important for that testing, uh, both in a training but also in combat? Why is testing such an important aspect for men? First off, the, if, if you want to develop guys, test them, but do it in an incremental level, right? Because we don't want to just crush people right off the bat, right? I mean, this, this is, yeah, applies to yeah. if you're training your buddies, your your local crew, or you're training your children. Like, you don't want to just overwhelm them and, and, and make them shut down right away. So, incrementally, making things harder and harder is huge um, because it gives us confidence. Then Then we start to go, okay, this is, now I've built up. 
you know, the, the, the more tests we have, we can look back on it and go, well, that was actually pretty easy. At the time, it was hard, right? At the, at the time, it was, you know, potentially overwhelming. You had to, you know, fight your way through it or you think your way through something. At the time, it was a really hard problem. And then once you've gotten through it, now you look back on it and you're like, actually, that was pretty easy. And then especially when the next problem comes and you're like, wow, this is way more of an issue. Then you look back at those other ones, all those other problems prepared you for the problem that you're facing right now. Uh, so in a training environment, we, we do get stronger. We grow when, when we're challenged like that. And then in a real world environment, we do need some affirmation that, hey, this stuff works. So it, it's a good, it is a good thing. And obviously there's different levels of it. Like we don't, we don't wish, you know, people to get into, you know, shootings or actual violent confrontations, you know, back on the, on the civilian side of things. But I will tell you, I absolutely, I was terrified that I would not ever see combat when I first joined the military. I remember really? seeing guys that were 18, 19 year guys when I first showed up at SEAL Team 3 that had never done anything for real. They had, they'd come in and been trained by all the Vietnam guys, heard all the Vietnam stories been in during, you know, huge portion of the Cold War, but never done any anything for real. And I was terrified that that would be me. Um, so, you know, that, that's another thing kind of counter to culture right now is people think that 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 soldiers don't ever want to fight, but the soldiers that you want are the ones that want to go fight. Not for, you know, violence for violence sake, but guys want to go do the deed. They want to go, you know, protect our nation and go, you know, go fight America's enemies. And that's a that's good. You want that in men. If when when you lose that in uh, the men of your nation, eventually you don't have a nation. Yeah, I think that's one of the realities that makes people uncomfortable. Uh, recently, I was reading a Stonewall Jackson biography, and uh, one of the things that even even then people thought he was kind of kind of nuts. They had the Mexican War. This is before the Civil War. Um, but they said, "How how was the conflict?" And he said, "Well, I was grateful that there was hot enough fighting that I could prove myself." And he was one of those guys that, like in the classroom at West Point, he sucked. Like he he started out, he was not a good, not good with like book learning, but something clicked in that guy, and he he was good on the battlefield. Um, it reminds me of a conversation I had with one of our our local guys here, uh, Chris Peranto. It it would always kind of like shock people because he was like, "Oh man, the bullets were flying, and you know you got RPGs lighting up the night," and he's like, "It was beautiful." It was just beautiful. There's like no other place I wanted to be. And people are like, man, you're nuts. But when you think about it, like you said, like if you're a warrior, you want guys not who are cowards, right? Who are running away from fights, but you need that in your fighting men. And they have to balance it, right? You can't be like a perverse thing where you're just getting into scraps. You shouldn't. It, it reminds me too, like of kind of something I think that's missing a lot in the church is guys who are willing when you need to, guys who are willing to engage in a fight, whether it's with false teachers, um, whether it's with, you know, people coming to try and shut down your church. Um, it seems like, and I don't know if you've seen this, but it seems like w both spheres, military and civilian, like we need guys who know when to get into a fight, when it's important to defend something. Um, do, do, have you seen that as well? 100%. I mean, that, that's why the, the willingness thing is so important. Like w whether it's with violence uh, downrange, you know, that's you're, you're thinking through ROEs ahead of time. You're thinking through 
what if this happens then i do this if this happens then i do this and you think that's through beforehand because it allows you to do pattern recognition pattern recognition right. is how we're able to make complex decisions correctly very fast because we've actually thought through the problem beforehand and we just go oh that requires this and and you do it and you might do it two steps into seeing something develop instead of if you'd never seen it before and you'd never thought about it, you might let it develop 15 steps and then you might have to think about what the solution is. And then that, you know, you, you're way behind the power curve. Whereas if we can think through things first, then it allows us to shorten the chain to do that pattern recognition and act faster. We need to do the same thing in the church, right? We need to recognize that, hey, there are, there are false teachers that are out there. There's false doctrine that's being t- taught. And we need to be ready to stand up and, and give an account. And you can't do that if you don't know what your doctrine is. You can't do that if you're not yeah. spending enough time in the word. You can't do that if you're not spending enough time in prayer and asking for boldness to be able to do those things. Um, so you, you, you have to thinking through willingness within you know, spiritual you know, church evangelism, all that kind of stuff is every bit as important as thinking through willingness when it comes to violence. Yeah, I think that's really huge. Um, one of the questions that it kind of comes to my mind as we're talking about this is, you know, what you did for a career militarily. And I guess what I would describe as people's perception of that. So in my lifetime, it's changed culturally because it seems like every other person is playing video games that are some sort of special ops based thing. Um, what would you say to the average person? Like, do you think the Hollywoodized, um, you know, depiction or video game depiction of what you did in that military life. Like, how do they differ? I guess is what I'm asking. Reality versus what you see being portrayed. I mean, some of the stuff uh, you watch a movie like, is it Active Val? Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, something like that. So many. You know, I mean, stereotypes are stereotypes for a reason, and they they overdo so many of them, but it just like watching that movie just made me smile because there were so many things where they, you know, where they did, you know, they made like the super frog man that that's doing like everything, you know, according to lore. And, uh, you know, so on, on one end it's, you know, it's entertaining to see some of that stuff on the other end. It's also like, I, I don't watch a whole lot of it. Like I don't, I know there's some shows and stuff there out there. I don't watch any of that stuff now. I do read Jack Carr's books. He's the only SEAL author that I've read since I joined the Navy. I've really enjoyed his his stuff. And if I did, part of it's the same, you know, I smile because like he'll he'll say something, you know, in in the book and it's like that's totally a team guy thing to say. And there's just so many of those little things and probably most people aren't even tracking on it. Um but like so many of the the little sayings in there are you know from from the teams. I'm I'm mixed on that. Like some of it, I, I enjoy yeah. seeing, yeah, and yeah. some of it just it gets to be too much. And I'm like, no, like I don't want. Uh, yeah, we just watched uh, the new Amazon version of uh, John Clark, the old Tom oh, Clancy yeah. book. Uh, yeah, it, it was horrible. I thought. I mean, it was entertaining. <laughs> like I I, I yeah, watched yeah, it yeah. over the course of two evenings, but it was just. It was not without remorse as written by Tom Clancy. And and they, oh, yeah. they tried to make it so woke and uh you know politically correct 
you know, there's a female commander of, of the unit. Oh, no. And yeah, it, it was, uh, I'm just like, oh, <laughs> you know. Oh, dude, I know. And, and a lot of it, too, is funny because, like, some of these guys are real. But I was talking to another SEAL, and he was telling me, like, this dude's for real. Like, Jocko Willink is for real. But, you know, people think that, like, every SEAL was like that. Jocko is, I mean, he's Jocko, and it, it's 4 a.m., and I'm sweating on my floor. He's exceptional. And, you know, yeah. all that stuff. He is not yeah, the norm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and that's what I'm driving at. It's like, it's been strange for me in the last 10 years, firearm industry training, et cetera, getting to know just guys from SF, different, different groups. And it's like, I'm kind of blown away. Like these are normal guys. And many of them are not, you would never know um, that they were a, a warrior soldier at the very top level. Um, a lot of them don't brag about it. seems like the ones I've met who are really, really good are kind of some of the most unassuming. I don't know if you've seen sort of that, that dynamic, but, um, it seems like from my perspective, I've seen it. Yeah, there's just because you're a soldier or you're in soft or, you know, you you wear a certain type of pin does not mean that you're a phenomenal fighter. That um, That's probably the biggest one because everyone has some level of shooting ability, but also right. it doesn't mean you're a good shot by at least by like by current training standards. Like when my former teammates asked me, like, "Hey, who are these guys that come train with you?" I'm like, overwhelmingly, they're men, they're, and they're guys that are just serious about being ready. They're, you know, they're they're serious yeah. about being able to protect themselves and their family. And I will say, a large portion of my students shoot their pistols better than former teammates do. They don't really? shoot carbines better, but they shoot pistols better because they they put more time and effort into it. They're into it, you know. And guys are kind of uh, shocked when when I tell them that, but it's just it's. If that's your thing and you're you're into doing this, you know, guys guys get good at it. and and you know team guys are j- just like any other profession. There's a standard that you have to be able to make, and some guys just barely make that standard. Be it be it shooting or or fighting or running or swimming or any of that stuff. But ultimately, like there's a standard there, and some guys are going to be good with just barely meeting the standard. And other yeah. guys are going to totally geek out in whatever aspect it is, whether it's jumping, you know, we'd say, that, oh, this guy's a, you know, he's a sky god. Like all he wants to do is go on jump trips and like learn to, you know, to fly head down. And, you know, th- there was guys that geeked out on that. There was guys that geeked out on the climbing side of things. There's guys that, you know, were hardcore onto the breaching side of things. And it's good, right? It makes everyone better when you delve into, you know, those, those different things. And for me, it just happened to be, I really, well, I enjoyed all those other things that I just mentioned. Um, the things that I really geeked out on was the, was the shooting and the fighting. I mean, that was, you know, for years and years, I didn't have a girlfriend. I didn't go out drinking. I did jujitsu every night and I showed up early for work every morning and shot like 500 rounds, (laughs) which was just amazing for me when I was like, really, I can come here anytime I want to and shoot as much as I want to. Oh, especially right now with the ammo shortage bill. Oh, yeah. You know, so, it, it, you know, so you've got guys on, on, on both ends of the spectrum. Yeah. What do you think it was for you about the shooting and the fighting that attracted you? What, what, what drew you to it? It's a good question. Probably just that's how God made me. I, I really yeah. think there's, there's certain things that you're just like, and you have an affinity for it. You enjoy it. I had zero formal firearms training until I joined the military. 
you know, I had I had grown up around firearms and, and done some shooting. I had, I remember reading Guns and Ammo magazine when I was, you know, before I was even a teenager. I remember having a subscription yep. to it when it cost like twelve bucks a year to have a subscription <laughs> yeah. to Guns and Ammo. Uh, so I was always into it, but had never done any formal training until I got into it. Uh, the martial arts side, I had part of what drew me into that was was being the only American where I lived in Germany was I fought all the time. Like my folks were horrified because it was just like I fought at, you know, and from kindergarten up, like I fought almost daily for a long time and they weren't as violent of fights as like when I finally came to the States, like the fights were more violent. I would say it was more wrestling and like kind of punching, punching each yeah. other in the guts than it was like full on, like, I'm going to break your nose and, you know, make you bleed. But it was still like, that was just, that was kind of a normal way of how things were solved. And me being the only American in, you know, starting off in kindergarten, like all German kids, me not speaking any, any German when I first got (laughs) thrown in there, like there was a lot of fights. So part of it was, I wanted to learn how to fight better. I'd always wanted to do karate because I thought that would show me how to fight. And my parents didn't want me to do that. I got to do judo for a while. And then when we moved to Africa, I got to uh, do Taekwondo and really enjoyed that. It was very hard style. Like we met at the Portuguese club in Mbaban, Swaziland, hardwood floors. You met twice, twice a week for like two, two and a half hours for practices. Remember the first practice? knuckle push-ups on a hardwood floor until my knuckles were bleeding i'm like 13 years old just going this is awesome like just totally loving it you know sparring with no pads on uh just by normal taekwondo rules so no you could kick people in the face but you couldn't punch them in the face and then you could also kick to the midsection so really enjoyed that moved back to the states kept doing taekwondo very competitively for about another year or so and then figured out this thing called organized sports that they have in American schools, which foreign schools don't really have that. It's honestly, it's one of the reasons I think we crush people in warfare. We have better soldiers than anywhere, anyone else. And it's in part because of organized sports because the other nations just don't have something on that same level. Uh, so my junior year, I went out for wrestling, you know, got thrown around a lot and then ended up, I think maybe 50% wins. By, you know, by the end of the season, kind of took to it very quickly and then <laughs> loved wrestling. So my senior year, then I, I uh, ran track or ran cross country to get in shape for wrestling season, then wrestled and then ran track to, to make sure that I didn't get fat and lazy before joining the military. So I'd, I so I'd done some of that. And then let's see, next martial arts was uh, with a guy named Lou Hicks in down in Imperial Beach, California. He was a guy that had done a lot of the scars, Jerry Peterson's scars stuff, yeah. which was uh, one of the systems that the SEAL teams had used for a while. There was some truth with that system, but there was also a lot of lies and kind of make-believe stuff uh, that, that went with that. So it was I value that time. There's some good things that I learned, but it was definitely not, you know, as we would say now, it was not the way. And went out to the East Coast and actually had wanted to do some blade stuff. And I remember going and going to Frank Cucci's school. There's basically two jiu-jitsu schools. And the, the one also taught you know some a little bit of Kali stuff. So I went to that other one first. And it was a lot of yes sir, no sir, drop down and do push-ups. And I'm like, yeah, I don't really need that right now in my life. 
Uh, and then I walked into Gustavo's gym and it was just this dank mat room, like cloth covered mat. It just reeked <laughs> of sweat. Like there was no heating or AC. So you like froze in the winter time and just melted in the summer. And I, I remember walking in and being like, yep, this looks like home. This is and it. then you just <laughs> poured a lot of time and effort into that place. And, you know, very blessed to have a, you know, phenomenal instructor, Gustavo Machado is like, one of the best jujitsu guys um, in the nation, just f- phenomenal, um, great teacher, uh, really took me under his wing. So I did that basically until I left Virginia um, at a, not continuously at the same pace. Like at, when I first started, right. it was, I trained five nights a week and Saturday, Saturday mornings, because that really was my life. And then as yeah. I met my wife, uh, that got less and less uh, until it was, you know, I'd, I'd roll at work or every once in a while I'd go in and see Gustavo and roll. Um, but it kind of went away. And then at some point in there, I was introduced to Syok Kali, which is uh Syok is a family name, the family system. Uh, and it's very weapons based. And it was the first time that I would say there was, you know, if, if we say that, mar- you know, martial means warlike, it was the first truly warlike system where they're talking about using weapons in group settings. You know, you dealing with multiple targets, you and your buddies dealing with one guy, you know, stuff that like, mar- you know, quote unquote, martial artists don't talk about doing that kind of stuff. Where does it come from? It, it's from the Philippines. Um, okay. A guy named Pamana Tuan Chris Sayak was the guy that started it. Um, he passed away a couple of years ago. But so I got plugged in with those guys and just have been very, that's been hugely influential on all the stuff that I teach, like all the blade stuff that I teach either comes from Sayak or Atienza Kali. Um, which are they're they're kind of similarly minded systems, both very blade and and weapons focused, and you know that just kind of opened my eyes to that's really the if if you're truly trying to make people as capable as possible, you teach them how to use weapons first. Right. You don't do a bunch of empty hand stuff that may or may not work. Like if 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 it's your wife that we're trying to teach or my children, we teach them the most dangerous stuff first. So that they can win an encounter, right? You did 15 minutes with a pistol, right? And they yeah. can they can stop someone from breaking into your house. You know, good 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 mindset, good awareness, and you know, 15, 20 minutes with a pistol, and they're a problem. You do a couple hours with a blade and and you're a problem. As soon as we go to just truly empty hand, now, you know, my my number one son is eleven years old. He's getting to be pretty strong, but he's still, he's 11 years old. I outweigh him by over a hundred pounds still. If he knew every bit of information that all of my teachers combined knew, he does not beat me until we put a tool in his hand. We put a tool in his hand, we put a blade, we put a tropo, you know, we we put any kind of tool. It's game changing. Now, exactly. So if we're actually talking about about a system being martial, i.e. warlike, we have to train weapons first. And then eventually, yeah, I mean, what, how, how much good does it do grandma if you show her how to do arm bars from guard? Like she doesn't <laughs> yeah, right. get anything out of that. You teach her how to have heightened awareness, how to safely carry a pistol and get it into action. And then, oh, uh, pull a blade out with your other strong hand and stab someone if, if you can't get your gun out. Like, right. All of a sudden we've, we've increased a lot of capability, right? Yeah, I think that's huge. And I think one of the one of the facets of this is like taking everything that you've learned and then equipping uh people who maybe don't have that military background, right? You can equip them. Um they can learn these skill sets. 
I'm particularly interested, uh, we've talked a little bit about this, but the American Tactical Shooting Instruction is, is your company, Amtech Shooting. You're teaching people a lot of this stuff, right? You've got a lot of different courses. I, I just want to ask you uh, to tell us about that. Um, how did you get into it? Um, what was kind of the impetus for, for starting a training leg um, for people to engage with these uh, concepts and, uh, and mindset and all that stuff? The way I got into teaching, the, the last two years I was active duty, I ran our canine program. Okay. I'd never, you know, I'd been in a bite suit a couple of times, but had never actually been, I'd never, was never a handler, had never done any of this stuff, but I was, you know, a, a senior enough guy that would, they said, Hey, that, that was one of the options that I had for my kind of my twilight right. tour. And so I had a bunch of guys that worked for me and not, most of them were actually not seals. Most of them were normal Navy master at arms with, that had the dog handler specialty. And so these guys had a significant significantly less tactical and shooting background. So I just started making these guys shoot with me and, you know, do some training with me on, on a weekly basis. And then we'd go and do these trips all over the country. And a lot of times local police departments would be hosting us. And I'd, I'd always try and grab one or two of their guys just as a thank you. And like, Hey man, come, come do, do a shooting block with us. And these, I started getting really good feedback from, from the guys like telling me, man, this is like, this is really good. And, our instructors normally just yell at us and, and say, do this. And they don't show us. And I was like, really? Like, yeah, not everyone demos, you know, as they talk through it and, you know, demo it right and wrong and like all the different ways. And, uh, and, and so I just, I started getting a lot of encouragement and, and a lot of them were, a lot of the encouragement was from, uh, I had like seven or eight, uh, just career cops they're they're between 15 and 30 year guys that had run dogs wow. that whole time so really seasoned experienced guys and uh and they were my trainers and so they they encouraged me a lot they're like hey man if you want to do this like you can you know basically write your own ticket is what one of them said and yeah. i was like well man that sounds like a good plan like i i enjoy i enjoy doing this stuff i'm decent at it i've gotten a lot better at it since i started teaching and so we we started American Tactical Shooting Instruction and actually the, the day that I retired from the Navy. Uh, and then we've really just, we, you know, we've, we've grown a lot. I mean, we went from the, the first half year I was a civilian. Uh, I think I had one or two, if, if any of my own courses that I taught, I was just working for other guys. Yeah. Uh, and then as, as we started to grow, we started looking at, well, what's, you know, what's most important to teach? And really we approached the the curriculum like that so our, our first pistol course is called the responsible armed citizen and it's a very pistol fundamentals course had a lot of people say it's a very advanced course i think of it as just i, I to me I, I don't think there's a whole lot of advanced stuff in shooting to to me it's it it's all about the you know competency levels we start off with unconscious incompetence you don't know what you don't know then you start training and you get to a level of conscious incompetence. You're like, wow, there's this whole world out here and I, I'm horrible at it. And then, you, and then you train for a while and you get to conscious competence. Okay, if I think about digging with my toes, focus on that front side, squeeze, 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 bang, wow, it worked, right? That would be a conscious competence level. Right. And then where we all want to get to is unconscious competence. That guy needs to be shot, bang, right? So conscious decision, I need to engage right now. Everything else happens unconsciously. The only way we get to that level is by doing deliberate training with feedback. 
So not just doing something 10,000 times or 10,000 hours, but doing having a plan and going down the line and going, okay, now I'm going to rep this. And then I'm, I'm videoing myself or I've got a, someone that I respect that's watching me saying, okay, now on that, on that carving presentation, there's still a little bit of head movement at the end, right? Which, which takes away from our efficiency. Responsible armed citizen, mostly pistol fundamentals with an intro to combatives block in it. So a little bit of, of fighting to your gun, a little bit of uh, what combative weapons retention shooting. So coming in, hitting that spear elbow, being able to fight through crossbody checks and, and pulling your pistol out at the same time. So as our first pistol course, then we progress to the integrated combatives course. And that is as one pistol fundamentals block and then has the most blade stuff. So we're right from Sayakali, you know, teaching where to put the blade, what to do with it, learning, doing everything, other strong hand, reverse grip, which that's really, that's what flows the best when you're talking, hey, I'm not just doing this to, to have a knife or a sword, right? I carry a gun on my hip every day. So all the all blade right. stuff that I'm learning, I want that to be supportive towards that. Well, if I can, as, as it's most basic, and this is something that everyone can, can, can employ right here, at its most basic, you try and grab my gun and I anchor either my pipe, you know, forearm across, across the pistol, or I put the palm of my hand on top of it and I push it in. And then if I can deploy a blade with my other strong hand, I win. Like one of the easiest things out there, no one talks about it. You're, you're starting to see a little bit of, of other strong side blade carry becoming popular. Um, but it's really like when you think through it and do what we call logical order of thought, LOT on it, it's like, man, everyone should be doing that. It's such a huge return on investment. Hey, we, we train for 30 minutes of anchoring your pistol and pulling a blade out and putting it in someone's throat. Like you've got that down. Well, I mean, it's, you know, guys, yeah. guys laugh when I say yeah. that, but if someone's going, you know, by law enforcement rules of engagement, if someone's trying to take their weapon, that is, you know, they're allowed to use lethal force to stop that from happening. So you should be think, thinking the same thing. If they are, if, if you think they're going to get your gun and kill you with it, you need to stop them from doing that. And that that's one of the simplest ways to do that is just by carrying a blade, other strong side and being able to draw it one handed. That's another huge one. And that, that's another big thing that I, that I talk about with, with then shooting as well as strong hand only draws, not, you know, the, the, the industry standard is, Use one hand to clear your cover garment and then and then draw. That works fine if you're three to five yards or, or more away. But if we're standing right next to each other and I can punch you in the throat and pull my pistol out at the same time, that's so much better than yeah. me using both of my hands to pull my pistol out. Because what is your what's what was uh what's your draw stroke from concealment while being punched in the throat? <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. I, I hope I don't want to find out honestly. Like, but it's probably not as good is not getting punched in the throat so like if you yeah, can exactly. if you can throw that first feed in there very very quickly that's huge so integrated combatives course we do a bunch of blade stuff then we do a bunch of empty hand stuff and then we integrate all of it together so going from being able to throw punches or elbows to if my left hand is free i'm pulling a blade out if my right hand is free i'm pulling a pistol out and regardless i'm always trying to improve my position and I'm trying to improve the weapons that I have available to me. Um, be it going from, you know, flashlight in hand to blade in hand to gun in hand to pulling your carbine out of your truck. Like whatever it is, constantly try to improve your position and the weapon. 
Um, oh, and we do a, a we spend about an hour, hour plus talking about mindset because again, if we don't talk about our mindset, about our awareness, our willingness, our preparedness, we're wasting our time. Then the next course, the force on force course, this came about. A lot of this stuff has just kind of evolved as as we do one class and guys start using it. They're like, man, this would be cool to actually try and test the stuff. Uh, so with the force on force class, again, we do pistol fundamentals. And if, if you're not seeing a theme here, you should be see, seeing a theme. We do fundamentals every single course that I teach because they are the yeah. foundation of all of this. Um, and then we do a little bit of hard skills, but we focus on like get off the extra uh, and then also pattern recognition for what do you do if a threat's pointed at you or charging you versus what do you do if the threat is not pointing at you? Because our, you know, we can break that down into two like massive categories. That, that require a different response. So we break that down and then we just do a lot of just force on force. We use airsoft because it's more cost effective. You know, it's, it's cheap to do. Most guys don't have a hard time spending 150 bucks on a, you know, a new toy. Um, and the pain wise, it, it's about the same, honestly, between, you know, you don't get the auditory that you do with, with the UTM or simunition guns, but pain wise, it's about the same. And so we just do, we, we wrap a bunch of different uh, what I call situational drills. And basically the difference between a situational drill and a scenario is the scenario might be, you need to go into this house. You go into the house and you're like, this looks sketchy. I'm going to leave. That, that might've been the right thing to do. Right. Yeah. But you didn't yeah. get any good training out of that or, or the training that you received was different. So a situational drill, I just say, Hey, you're at the park. It's a known gang hangout. Close your eyes. When I say go, you can open your eyes. Go, they open their eyes and there's something that's already happening or something that's developing. So they don't get the option to leave beforehand, which again, might, you know, it's always a higher level win to win without violence. To be able to not be there is, is the highest level win. Recognize that this is a bad part of town. Don't go there. My life, 100% better off if I can do that. So we, we do a bunch of, uh, bunch of force on force situational drills like that. Then got a request to do a low light course. And so now we do a low light tactics course. Basically we shoot that one day into night. We'll meet around 1230. We'll shoot a nice four hour pistol block and just go through a little bit faster, normal fundamentals progression. And then we just shoot all the different ways that guys shoot with a flashlight in their hand and talk through doing tack reloads, doing mag changes, um, doing malfunction clearance, like all that stuff with a flashlight in your hand. And then we'll shoot drills. For, for all the guys that, that still aren't carrying a flashlight on their pistol, I just say, hey, here, I want you to shoot this drill. Shoot it with whatever your favorite flashlight in hand position is. On, and we shoot it on a timer. We'll do it like twice like that and now shoot it without a flashlight, you know, with, with just using your weapons light. And it's generally guys shoot it about a third faster. You know, and then the question is, well, if, if, if you might be saving a family member's life, is a third faster better? I, I would say yes, probably worth the two or three hundred dollars it costs for for a weapons mounted light. Um, so we do that, and then the newest of our pistol courses is called the Low Vis Pistol Combatives Course, and basically this grew out of this is kind of funny. This was last year. I'm sitting around with some of my buddies in Massachusetts, and one of the guys, solid, like good, like trains hard. He's a, a local cop. 
he uh, we're talking about 43 X's. He's like, yeah, bro, that that's what I carry when I have to compromise carry. And immediately I'm like, oh, like, like the, the wheels were spinning. I'm like, that's a horrible name. Like, that's like saying like, <laughs> like I'm weak yeah. like that. So like we threw that, that name out of the, out of the hat very quickly. What, what, you know, what's the, you know, I'm one of my mantras is full size man, full size gun, you know, carry the biggest pistol, carry the pistol that you shoot the best with and then dress around it. Uh, yeah. But that's not always like if you are a doctor and you're in scrubs all day long, like that might not be the, the, the same thing. Or if you're someplace where you're going to get fired, if if they see that you have a pistol on you, like that might not work for you. So then it's, well, do I just not carry a gun? Do I not carry a full size gun? Because that would be the best or carry a smaller gun. Well, obviously carry a smaller gun. And then with the advent of the 43 X. And Shield Arms magazines, and now the Surefire XCS, I think it is their their new compact weapons light. And now I've got right. a gun that I shoot almost as good as a 17 or a 19, with 15 rounds in the gun, another 21 rounds I think in my pocket for, yeah. on a, for a combat reload on a really small package. And so basically, we built the, the the class around that. Shoot a so we do like. A, even the blade deployment stuff is from lower viz, like deeper concealment type stuff. I talk through like starting the fight with a pocket pistol, like left-handed snubby in, in your jacket pocket. And then, and then starting it there and then transitioning from that to a bigger, better pistol. Um, so we just do a, you know, a lot of stuff like that. We do also do a block on uh, combatives in a freedom reduced environment. So if you're someplace where you're not allowed to have purpose built tools, like what what are the tools that we can carry on us uh, that that are dual use, but that still give us a, a significant capability increase? Yeah, that's a lot of me talking for just five of our different pistol courses. <laughs> we do a night vision course. We do a CQB course. We do uh, environmental stuff. We do one of my favorite courses is we do it in the, the wintertime and it's a week of snowmobiling and backcountry skiing, medium distance shooting and a little bit of small unit tactics. And I love it because I love winter. I, I love anything on anything where I'm going fast over snow is really enjoyable for me. Yeah, I noticed a lot of the uh, like on your Instagram feed. I was like, this dude likes to cross country ski a lot. And I know it's been winter time. It's not actually cross country ski. So I, we just need to make the differentiation. It's backcountry ski. Cross country okay. skiing is you're on these skinny little skis that don't even have metal edges on them. That it's basically you're on a cross country track. What I do is backcountry skiing either on telemark skis or AT equipment. Okay. And you can pretty much go anywhere and you can ski, you know, anything that is skiable, you can ski on this equipment so it's really it's it's true mountain mobility versus a very stylized sport see around here bill we have the uh the, all the 10th mountain division stuff so those guys are i mean you can still stay at the huts i don't know if you guys have that where you are but in colorado yeah i'd love to do the 10th mountain division hut to hut is like a famous i would love to do that someday Oh, it's big. And a lot of times like people will rent them, but we've hunted out of them. We've, we've done certain, you know, stuff like that, especially along like the Colorado trail. But yeah, I think it it was kind of an understanding, especially in the West. But if you were going to survive in the back country, like mobility becomes a huge thing. And anybody who's hunted it, you cover any amount of distance, you start to realize like you got to be able to carry weight on your back and cover 
just a lot of country. I mean, and that the the, the step goes from you know, you're going to walk through deep snow with with no snowshoes. Right now, you're just post holing. You're going to get cold and wet really fast, and you're moving incredibly slow. And then we throw snowshoes on. We move a little bit faster, but it's still pretty slow. But now it is it is significantly better. As soon as we go to skis, and then especially if we have a group of guys, the first guy is still breaking trail. It's still hard. The second guy is packing it down a little bit more. By the third guy, you might as well be on a groomed cross-country trail because it's like it's packed in and it's effortless. And then when you get to any kind of decline, you're just coasting. I mean, that's, that's uh, you know, yesterday I hiked, uh, hiked and then skied Stevens Peak. It's a peak about two hours away from us here. There's multiple times as we're skinning up. So we put skins on the bottom of our skis so that you don't slip backwards and you can, you can, you can go up a pretty significant angle that way. Multiple times, and just as I'm going up, I'm looking at back at my buddy Ivan and I'm saying, man, it just puts a smile on your face when you're on skis doing this because you know that it's going to be a good time going down versus oh, yeah. you get to the top of the mountain and you're on snowshoes. Guess what? Now you have to trek down and like pay for every yeah. step on the way down. Versus just having, oh, yeah. you know, higher skill level and, and fun on the way down. Yeah. No, that's awesome. I want to ask you about the training too. So one of the ways that uh, I, I believe guys can get involved with this is you're trying to do this uh, local chapters. Um, so explain to me how that works. And maybe, I mean, I, I, I'm definitely one of those people interested in saying like, okay, if we train, we have to train all the time, not once a year. Um, and you have to have guys local to do that. So again, just break down how that works. What's your vision for for that side of things? We are starting a program called Amtech Training. Amtech Training initially is going to only be for guys that that I've actually shot courses with, and that that kind of gives us a little bit more control. It, it allows us to vet people, and we'll make the overall product better because we should have less kind of internet commandos that show up and, and, and want to take over. Uh, so basically the, the way most guys do training now is they will train with someone that is good one to three times a year. Right. And then, and then, you know, at the end of a class, it's, Hey man, good job. Uh, you know, work on this and, you know, hopefully I'll see you next year. If we applied that to wrestling, and you said, "Hey, I'm I'm a wrestler, but the way I the way I become a wrestler is two or three times a year. I'm going to go to a two day seminar on wrestling. You wouldn't actually be a wrestler. You'd be a guy that goes to seminar, shooting, and you know, fighting to be able to protect your family is infinitely more important than wrestling. And yet our approach is is wrong. So, right, Amtech training is going to be." Uh, it'll be a monthly subscription plan. I'm going to put out curriculum that everyone that's a part of it will be following on, on a monthly basis. We'll also do some classroom stuff as well. That'll be, you know, over, over zoom again, only for guys that are, that are part of the crew. Uh, but then the, the biggest value will be, you'll have local training groups to go to. So if, if the, you know, this month's curriculum, we're focused on pistol combatives, you know, it'll be, well, everyone has trained with me before, so everyone will have, have, have done, you know, at least a level of the pistol fundamentals thing. So the training group leader will simply say, OK, guys, you know, this for the next, you know, one magazine, we're going to focus on this. Everyone works reps on that. OK, 
Okay, for the next yeah. magazine, we're going to do strike ready presentations. Go. Work some reps on it. Now we're going to work strong hand only draw stroke. Go. And so basically, you're being talked through this. So the expectation is that you meet with your local crew and you train with them on a monthly basis and then and then go out to eat with the guys or barbecue or whatever afterwards because that's another it's every bit as important as building that building that tribe building those relationships of guys that you trust so amtech training will encompass three overarching columns or areas right uh the first one mindset strategy and fitness right we need we need a proper mindset we need to think through strategy well and we need to be fit so that that all falls into one one category that the discipline stuff that we were talking about that would fit into that category. Uh, then the next is responsible armed citizen skills. That is all of your pistol work, all of your combatives, all of your blade, basic medical, tribe centric CQB. And what I mean by that is like it's you and your wife and a kiddo, like and you've got to get yeah. from point A to point B. Um, there will be basic medical, basic comms, all that stuff will be in. The responsible armed citizen category and then the last category is the modern minuteman category and that is going to be all of your carbine work all of your precision rifle all of your environmental so being able to move through the desert or be able to move through the snow being able to survive in that all of your navigation more on the comms more on the medical more on the small unit tactic side of things all that will fall into the modern minute and then periodicity wise we will hit all of those topics every year so I'm I'm really excited about it. Uh, most of the guys that I've told about it are, are pretty excited about it as well. So I think it's going to be a good thing to kind of create that community local to you. And not to say that if you live in the middle of nowhere and you don't have guys around you, you know, you can't be a part of it. Um, but really, the idea would be you recruit one of your buddies or two of your buddies to then be a part of it and then to grow your own local crew. Yeah, I've seen in the last year kind of the the uptick in interest. Okay, so there's there's a, a couple layers of this. One is the number of firearms, particularly handguns, uh, record sales purchased last year. Um, but one of the things that we found um, in the gun industry is that like a very small percentage of those people will have any training whatsoever. So this means they're either not going to know how to use the firearm, or most people, I think this is common. Like you have it, it's in a box it's locked in your closet. What good is that going to do you? I know guys, I go hunt with guys and they have a pistol, they put it in a case and then they put that in the bottom of their backpack. And it's like, well, I mean, that's not really doing any good to anybody. Yeah. It's just, just added weight. You're just carrying more weight. So I, I would think in the coming year that it's, it's sort of ripe too for this aspect of training. Um, you add in civil unrest or at least the, the potential for that. People want to be able to respond to that well. And, you know, the Proverbs are right. You know, a, a neighbor who is near is better than a brother that's far away. So you got to have proximity and locality uh, to be able to band together with these people, you know, establish perimeter, all that good stuff. Um, I'm curious. I want to ask you particularly about the Minuteman stuff. It's got a lot to do with physical fitness. What brought about thinking through that particular aspect of the training? And what is it? So that... That term came from my buddy Chainsaw. So one one of my friends, uh, we did the Sniper Adventure Challenge together for three years in a row. He's a solid dude, and I was trying. A couple of years back, I was trying to find a partner for one of my local guys to do the Sniper Adventure Challenge race with. 
And usually the conversation would go something like this. I would call up someone that I thought was either physically fit enough or had the, you know, the, the mill background to, to do it if they wanted to. And I'd say, hey, man, here's the be prepared to task. Walk 40 to 60 miles navigating the whole time with anywhere from 40 to 60 pounds on your back. Be able to shoot out to 1500 yards, be able to run a pistol as well, potentially get handcuffed and break free, you know, like play weird Kim's games, like all this stuff, you know, wade out onto a lake and make a shot from a, you know, just like a bunch of weird stuff. And, uh, and, oh, and it's continue. It's a continuous race for like 36 hours. And generally guys would just start laughing. They'd be like, why would, you know, like, especially like former work guys would be like, why would I want to do that? And then a lot of times from the civilian side would be like, well, like maybe in a couple of years, if I train for it. And so I was kind of venting a little bit to, to chainsaw about this. And he goes, yeah, modern Minuteman stuff. And as soon as he said that, I'm like, yes, Dude, that's we, awesome. like, we yeah. need, we need to make more guys that can do this kind of stuff because it, yeah. it's valuable, right? The, the guy that can do that is um, much more able to lead under hard circumstances. Uh, and so I, I really just kind of ran with that you know, kind of that concept. I started thinking about what is a modern minute man? What should he be ready to do? How do we build guys that maybe have never rocked before? You know, how, how do we build guys that are able to do this? So I, I laid out, I've, I've got an article written on, on, on our website, amtechshooting.com about, uh, you know, what, what is the modern minute man? How do we, you know, how do you work your way into it? Because you, the, the, the answer is not throw on a 50 pound rock and go walk five miles. If you've never rocked before. Like you're just going to hurt yourself. And, and then, you know, especially as we get older, training is training. First and foremost, we got to stay healthy. If every time you try and train, you, you injure yourself, like you're stop. Like you're, you're not actually helping anyone by doing that. Uh, You're just you're continuously injuring yourself. So we have to, first and foremost, we have to be healthy. So I, I laid out a plan for, you know, slowly starting off, you know, with just, you know, mile long walks with, uh, you know, with, with no weight and then, you know, working that up to two, three milers and then, and then starting to add rocks and then a little bit of different periodicity with lighter rocks and heavier rocks and kind of bouncing back and forth like that. And then I also, I put some standards in there on like things, things you should be able to do as far as, you know, you know, being able to sprint a mile or walk five miles with a load or, you know, tread water, save, save a buddy, climb over a wall, like, just some stuff that's like basic man stuff that if you can't do, you, you know, I, I talk a lot about, def, uh, about training is about pointing out deficiencies. If training was, was about me just saying, man, you're awesome. Oh man, actually you're even more awesome. Like that, that doesn't really do anything for us. It doesn't make <laughs> yeah. us any better training. When I roll with dudes that are better than me and like I get crushed, I'm getting better when that happens. Yeah. And, and that's, because deficiencies are being pointed out to pointed out to me, either I didn't have the gas to keep going, or this guy was just technically way better than me, or he's way stronger than me. whatever it is. Like I am learning that I, you know, whatever I was doing isn't working in, in these circumstances, and now I have to change my game plan and try and do something else. That's a huge win if I look at it that way. Too too often, guys are scared. You know, guys guys have egos, and I mean, we all have egos. But you need to be able, if you truly want to be as, as good as possible, you need to be able to lay the ego aside and just go, okay, man, I want to, I want to get good at this. Like, if something's better than what I'm doing currently, I'm going to make sure it's better. I'll socialize it with my buddies and, you know, with my peers, with my mentors. But guess what? If it's better, it's mine now. 
Like I'll yeah. give you credit for it forever. But if it's better, like why would I keep doing something that I think is inferior? Just right. because I've been doing it that way for, you know, however many, it doesn't matter if I've been doing it that way for decades. If something is better, that's, that's what I want to do. Yeah. I think that's huge too. Like th- this concept too, of like men sharpening themselves, you know, iron sharpens iron, but yep. men in the group of other men pushing each other. And I think getting over that fear of failure. I was at a, I think it was in Utah, a training course, Southern Utah. And it was like, we had to engage a few targets. We had to run like 50 meters and engage a hundred yard steel target with a pistol. And it was like, obviously people are going through the rounds to hit that steel target at the end. You know, you're breathing hard, whatever. Um, and there was one guy, he got to the line and you could tell he was frustrated because he went through two mags. He's out of ammunition. And the trainer was like, we're not stopping until you hit that target. He's like, are you embarrassed to fail in front of your friends? He's like, we're, we're not shaming you. He, and he told everybody else on the line, he's like, start loading mags for him. Like, we're, he'll, we're here till he hits that. And it wasn't, um, you know, it wasn't to degrade the guy or anything. It was to just show us all that, look, you're going to fail in front of your friends. And yeah. they're going to see it and you need to be okay with it. And, and then you get better and you learn and you calm down and just like, you know, trigger press, front sight, squeeze, boom, finally you hit steel. And, and then you realize, like, it's not that big of a deal. Um, I think that's one of the biggest barriers um, when you're training, particularly handguns. If, you're, if you don't really, if you haven't done it a lot, there can be a lot of fear um, for guys. And then on the physical side as well. I, I know this from backcountry hunting. So it, it's very much similar to your story where I will say to guys, I'm really like, okay, look, dude, I'm going over that peak in that back basin. It's an eight mile hike, pretty vertical. We're going to kill a bull in our tree season and we're going to pack it out. And you don't even get that far into the story and people are like, nah, no, that's not happening. First of all, there's not many people physically that can, that can do that. They can even get there. Yeah. Yeah. They could even get into the basin, let alone like, let's kill a bull. Let's do this thing. Um, That was kind of where I realized the importance of rucking because um, I was running half marathons and, and I realized, you know, running a half marathon is very different than having a hundred pounds of elk on your back and you know, your gear and your tent and your stove and like all this stuff. But once you get proficient at it, it's like um, that sort of mountaineering with weight on your back thing. I feel like was actually one of the higher uh, fitness standards that I had achieved and it's it's combined with like being able to endure the suck of you're freezing, it snows in the high country, and your tent collapses in the middle of the night, and you have to adjust to it adversity. Um, but and I want to come full circle back to this and ask you about it. But one of the things it always does for me is like I go back into the world after experiencing all these things, and I'm like I don't really care what people think about me. Um, I know I have a greater confidence in actual competencies, not perceived competency, but like I've actually done stuff. I've survived. Um, and anybody you go out there with and do the same thing, they generally like they come back as a, as a better person, I would say. So I'm wondering if you see that like as guys are getting competence, whether it's with knife fighting, whether it's with skiing in the backcountry, physical, mental, whatever it is, right? You see courage comes with that competence, right? Oh, it de- definitely. And it does, it makes guys' lives better. You know, that, that's a big thing that I 
that I try and portray is that you none of the stuff that we do is fear-based. All of this should right. in, improve your life. It should increase your quality of life. If you're doing this and it creates problems with your wife because you like to train and she doesn't like to train, like, sorry, dude, you're the leader. Like, fix it. Like, f- find yeah. a softer approach to her. Like, m- make her make it enjoyable for her. Like, that's your job as a leader is to is to figure out how to how to make it better. Not oh, every time I go train, it's this big. We get in a fight all the time. All right, so it it, it should make our lives better. I've had two two guys now uh, that have used tourniquets to either save their own life or or someone else's life. The last one I got wow. was two weeks ago. I'm I'm on the range, and I get. I get this garbled, tiny little, you know, thumbnail video. And I'm like, what's that? And he's like, first, first guy on an accident. Um, guy was bleeding out from a uh, brachial and he tourniqueted the guy. And then, and then he said, and he even forgot his tourniquet. Like he'd, he'd given it to like a kid or something uh, like, or put, he'd put it in a different vehicle. So like, he didn't even have a tourniquet. So he had to do an improvised tourniquet, which is like, like you should never have, it's a $30 piece of equipment. You should have them everywhere. You know? And he was like, man, that was a big lesson learned. But the, when the paramedics got there, they're like, yeah, he probably would have bled out if he wouldn't have done. That. So that's crazy. That's just, to me, that's a huge win right there. When guys are able to like incorporate that into your lot, into their lives. I've had guys, you know, give me feedback like that with fitness where like guys weren't doing any mobility stuff. And then now they're doing mobility stuff like with their wife as well. And that's, you know, that that's a win on a personal fitness level and also on a relationship level uh, and on, on the you know wife fitness side of things as well. So yeah, it's been, it's been cool watching guys get better. And, you know, also it, it's just been cool for me, like making friends with a, a lot of good guys. There's so many, you know, I say this all the time, like I'm blessed to have phenomenal students. Like I just have good dudes that show up, you know, always at the end of a class. I'm like, Hey guys, let's go grab food someplace. Like, we're yeah. like, let's go eat because I want to get to know these guys. Cause they're, they're good dudes. And I mean, it's just become such a cool thing where more than half the time now I, I'm not staying at a hotel. Like friends are picking me up at the airport and, and like I'm hanging out at their house instead That's of, awesome. you know, getting a rental car and staying at a hotel someplace. Like, it's just yeah. you know, so, so much better. I mean, I've, I've done birthday celebrations with people like, you know, with people's families. I mean, it's just, it's a cool, uh, you know, this should be about making your life better. Not about, Oh, I'm, I'm scared of, of, of everything now. Now, like it, it's just like, you're not fearful that your house is going to burn down. Doesn't mean you don't get fire insurance, right? You, you get the fire insurance and then, and then you make some maybe basic, thing you know basic improvements that that look right to you to try to not burn your house down and then you don't think about it anymore you know, maybe you think through like you know what do we do if there's a fire and then after that level you don't have to worry about it like the firearms training is the same way any of the combatives training is the same thing like you need to get to a certain level of proficiency you always have to have the heightened awareness of what's going on you need to think through the willingness right. what am i willing to do like you, but once you've thought through that stuff, then it's just, Hey, I'm, I'm on a maintenance of awareness, you know, taking in my environment, seeing what's going on. And I have a, a maintenance level of capability or of, you know, that falls into that preparedness category of, you know, I'm able to do this, you know, and the, and the fitness side of things would fall into that as well. Like I am able to, whether it's, you know, put a ruck on and, and walk into that basin to shoot the elk 
or to arrow the elk or, or whether it's, I need to be able to sprint a hundred yards and then still shoot that target, you know, make, make that hard shot. Right. You know, all those things are better when, when we are challenged, all those things are better when we do pressurize things. You were bringing up that example of, of having to run and shoot in front of peers. Yeah. That's one of the things that I do with, with uh, what I call a cold bore drill. You know, cold bore comes from snipers or recce. It's the first shot, sometimes the only shot you get. So I've incorporated a cold bore drill where like I, I talk through some stuff, have guys visualize, and then one guy at a time. They run through it and every, you know, and I'll, I'll build it up. I'll say, Hey, you know, I've had, you know, I've, I've missed this drill twice now since I've been doing it. Um, I felt horribly shamed each time I've, I've missed. Um, yeah. I've only had, I think one or two classes ever where no one missed. Um, and I'll tell guys that like, you know, specifically to increase the pressure and I'll tell them afterwards, like, I can't put that kind of pressure on myself shooting by myself. Doesn't work. Like, I was shooting with my sons today and i made the cold war shot at twice the distance that i would normally do it in front of students because i'm just like there's no pressure it's just me i'm like yeah bang shoot the credit card you know like not you know (laughs) it it, but it's totally different if if, when you pressurize it and you have to talk at the same time you know it's just like it makes it harder it's a really like being able to pressurize things being able to test yourself is just it's, it's vitally important to any kind of training yeah. And I think that's huge. I, I've noticed in hunting, I've noticed it in um, training environments. Like you, you got to, you got to introduce something that will simulate either, you know, raised um, heart rate, um, breathing, because the reality is like, you could go to the range and shoot paper all day, you know, and then like, there's an elk out there, there's a mule deer and you just start freaking yeah. out and you're breathing hard and you got to manage that stress. That's the bottom line. And it, it's the same deal. Like I know guys who can, we go and, and you're, everybody's on the line, you're shooting paper and they're just punching holes right in the center, you know, but the minute it's a side-by-side drill on steel against somebody else, it's like, it just all goes to crap. Like can't hit anything. Like, what am I doing? People are watching you miss 12 yards away at a piece of steel, like 10 times in a row. And you're like, i just, I want to get away. I'm done. Yeah. And you know what? You go back on the line and you do it again. And the instructor's like, wow, that was horrible. <laughs> I don't know, <laughs> you know, but you have to get over it. Yeah, you have to pressurize that stuff. You have to see where is my, how good am I right now with unconscious competence? How good that's am right. I with, with this being pressurized? Um, I mean, that, that's the whole reason I talk about the, the levels of competence because I've watched students be one ragged hole shooters. And then I... About half of the pistol courses we do, we finish with a stress course, which normally involves, you know, sprinting, you know, 10 to 50 yards and then throwing a bunch of elbows and a bunch of knees and, you know, transitioning to, you know, training blade, training gun, like initially. And then you get past all the, all the real people and you put down your training stuff and you put your, you pick your real pistol up. And now like a lot of times it starts 50 plus yards and you're making challenging shots. And, you know, and then you're sprinting in between obstacles and, and we always finish with, with, uh, you know, tourniquet application and, you know, stuff like that. And it's like, guys will fall apart that aren't at conscious comp or unconscious comp. If you're still at the conscious yeah. competence level and now you're thinking in your mind, what am I doing next? And, and instead of thinking, okay, I just, 
you know, I'm, I'm pointing it here and I need, and I'm sending rounds and I'm, and I'm getting hits and, and now I'm, and now I'm moving over here. Like if I have unconscious competence, I'm here and I'm shooting and I can already be thinking about moving on to the next thing. If I have conscious competence and I'm trying to think about both at the same time, it doesn't work. I heard this same thing uh, in the sports psychology world. I think it was Olympic diving, but they were saying, how, how did you know when your, your divers had gotten to like gold medal level? And they said, well, because they start diving dumb. And they asked the guy, like the coach, like, what does that mean? And it's like, well, there's this exactly what you're describing, this whole level where you have to think about it. And he said, I know they're doing well when they just get up there and dive. And then you say, what were you thinking? They're like, I don't know. I just, yeah, it's, it's, it's so ingrained in you that it's second nature and you just do it. Yep. That's, that's where you are proficient. Um, and, and there's no, there's really no substitute like this, this combination of pressure and practice. Like you, you just have to have both of those things. You do it enough and then you, and then you get to that level. I want to ask you too, for guys who want to sign up for something like that, what's the best way to do that? Do they go to the, your, your website, uh, phone number? What, what, what do they do? Yeah. Amtechshooting.com. All the courses are up on amtechshooting.com. That's the best way to, to get into a course. You just click on the course that you want and then click on registration. And it'll show up with, you know, what, what the price is and what the gear requirement is and all that stuff will be on there when, when you click on that. Yeah. And that, that's really the best way. I mean, we're on the socials as well. So Am- Amtech Shooting on Instagram and, and Facebook and then also Amtech Blades. Um, that, that is our other business. We sell knives. We sell a pocket fixed blade knife and then uh, two, two larger blades for other strong side carry. So and that, that would be AmtechBlades.com. Uh, or Amtech Blades on Facebook and and Instagram if you're interested in that. Um, but we're normally we're pretty responsive on the socials. Uh, email sometimes I get behind <laughs> on. So if I don't get back to you right away, I'm sorry. It's not because I hate you. It's because I have a lot going on in my life right now. Yeah, completely understandable. Well, we'll include links in the show notes for everybody to check those things out. Last thing I want to ask you about, we were talking about before the show. Um, was you're also doing a father-son program um, related to Christ-centered masculinity. So just give us some highlights about what that is all about. So father-son ministry, uh, actually kind of the, the, the genesis of this was reading one of Colonel Cooper's ramblings in, in the back of, of Guns and Ammo. And he just had on there, like, what is the kind of the list of like, what, what should young men know? And, you know, you're part, I think one of his titles, you know, Ride ride hard, shoot, shoot straight and tell the truth. I think that's, yep. that's one of the things he talked about, but like he talked about, you should know geography and you should play an instrument and be able to fight and all this stuff. So this, as we started doing father son ministry, we were, we started thinking through what is, what is the most important? What do we want our sons to know? And, and overwhelmingly by, you know, one is important and, and everything else pales in comparison is to, to know and love Jesus, right. To be a, Fully devoted follower of Christ is the most important thing. That's what we want first and foremost for our boys. So it is a, you know, Christ-centered training, but also they're like, we should be capable, right? We, we shouldn't be incapable of violence. We should be able to handle ourselves so that we can protect ourselves and our families. So we start off with doing jujitsu for an hour, hour plus. Then we have about a 15 or 20 minute Bible lesson. And then as it, first started the last hour was life skills 
life skills being everything from going and shooting. To, uh, a lot of times we would just do primitive skills, go out and, you know, we'd have woods behind the church and we'd go out and build a, build a fire, build a shelter, a lot of leadership. Like I would tell the older boys, like you, you two are both our team captains. Um, you're going to build a shelter and a fire and you're going to tell me how you would spend the night with all these boys. And they've got boys from ages four to, you know, 16, sometimes 18. So like they're having to do some, Dude, some leadership there. We've, uh, we've butchered and dressed hogs. We've gotten vehicles unstuck, changed oil. I mean, basically if you have know, so many of these things I was deficient on when I left the house, but it was basically the life less or the life skills were just things that what do I want my boys to be able to do when they leave? Then that kind of morphed into, we weren't getting out of there till like nine or nine 30 sometimes, <laughs> which is a bit excessive, especially if you got a four-year-old there. So lately we break it up a little bit more. We'll do an hour and a half of jujitsu. We'll do about a 20 to 30 minute Bible lesson. Uh, this year's focus is becoming a stronger follower of Christ. So just kind of looking at the different disciplines, looking at some of the men, looking at some of the martyrs, so it's been a great, uh, great study. Like I went from thinking that doing a 15 to 20 minute talk was a hard thing to do to where that's like, that's super easy for me now. You know, so like I've grown a ton from doing that. You know, initially I thought this was mostly going to be for the boys, but the men that show up are like, it's every bit as valuable for them. I mean, it's basically like we do, we do cool grappling and then we have a Bible study. That's awesome. And, you know, when we do hiking trips and camping trips, we got a cool camping trip coming up here um, where we'll get probably we'll get above the snow line for part of it. And it's just it's just a cool, like, you know, cool time of of being able to hang out with other men and boys and, and do things that are challenging for us. Uh, but then doing all of it with a focus on, you know, if if we do any of this without love, if we do any of this without following after Jesus, like we're wasting our time. Yeah, and it's um it's something I mean I grew up with boy scouts, I was an eagle scout, really loved a lot of things about it. But in terms of like discipleship, Christianity not so much, and then especially, you know, that's not really around anymore or an option for us. So it's cool yeah. to see these alternate things um being present and and I think that's actually a huge thing too because what I'm noticing pastorally with young men is especially like millennials and younger. So, you know, iGen and people like that, they don't have any of the fatherly skill sets. Fatherless homes are on the rise, you know, single parent homes, divorce, all that stuff. Um, so we, we refer to it as Papa YouTube because like if you, back in the old day, like if you needed to know how to do something, you asked your dad or a father figure in your life and they would show you how to do it. Well, now um, that's where people are turning is YouTube. Like, you know, show me how to change a tire. Show me how to change my own oil. Just these basic, how do I change the uh, the components of my toilet when they go out? How do I work on a yeah. sprinkler? You know, just very basic stuff, but it's like you're saying, it's essential for these young men to have those skill sets. And, and I especially love the, the leadership, um, like you said, having to, older boys, you know, because those situations could happen. Um, and even if they don't, you're going to learn how to lead your brothers and the younger boys as well. Um, and you need to, that stuff needs to be taught now. You know, you don't wait till a guy is 25 years old and hope he just kind of figures that stuff out because it probably won't happen. No, absolutely. Leadership is something that, that can be taught and should be taught because we get better. You know, some, some people are 
inherent leaders and other people are more reluctant leaders. And, and either way, both, both guys will be better if you teach them how to lead properly. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely essential. Well, Bill, I really appreciate it. I appreciate you coming on the show. Like I said, we are going to include uh, Amtech training links uh, for social media and your website where people can check out what you are doing. And again, I, I really appreciate it. Thank you. Eric, thanks for having me on. Good talk. Well, thanks again for listening to this episode of the Hardman Podcast. As always, we appreciate our Patreon supporters. We really could not make this show possible without your help. I do this work full time now with New Christendom Press, working with my friends Dan and Brian. And so we definitely, you know, it's amazing. This show, it's, it's impacted a lot of people. So it's the King's Hall, Bright Hearth. And uh, we're really honored to have such a wonderful tribe of people like yourself listening and supporting. So again, would encourage you as little as $5 a month. You can become a supporter of the Hard Men podcast. You get access to special content. You also get access to early content, early releases, and there's going to be more and more stuff coming down the turnpike. So again, appreciate you who are supporting on Patreon. If you're not, please consider doing that. And until next time, men, stay frosty, fight the good fight, act like men. <laughs>